You're listening to The Running Public. From marathoners to mud runners, we all have the same goal. Get to the finish line faster. That's right. This podcast is for you guys, The Running Public. There it is. What's the timer at today, Bracken? Negative 313. So you're living in 313 of free space right now before time officially begins for you. Anything you want to do at this time? I didn't make any mistakes in the last three minutes that I really need to undo. It's true. So I might just rest. I'm kind of tired. Every time we click start on this, our recording timer pops up at the top. And mine immediately goes to a negative number and starts counting back towards zero before it progresses. And Kirk starts at zero and counts normally. So whenever we get to the end of these episodes, Kirk's always like, all right, we got to wrap this thing up. And I'm always thinking we have like, I don't know, five minutes left. And I realize, no, I'm five minutes back in time on my timer than his. And that leads to a lot of abrupt finishes. It's not right. That's always why I'm like trying to hurry this along or we got to wrap it up here because we're living in different time zones somehow. Bizarre. And I always think, oh, we can squeeze one more topic in. I have two to four minutes here. We're set. Uh Well, you're always wrong. We're not. Ten out of ten times. You're wrong. Even a puppy would learn after like the third <laughs> or fourth time of something happening the same way. They, they'd adapt. It's true. Not me. You guys might not notice, or no, you might notice that there's no guest. It's me and the and the Brack attack today, isn't it, Brack? And just us coming at you. Yes, it is. Just us. No distractions, Kirk. I started telling. We have <laughs> no failures, no fluff. Yeah, no, no, no distracting guests or anything inspirational here today that's not true we're gonna cover some things yeah it's always like these people are this would be better if people stopped interrupting me and just let me talk more so we're just gonna do that do you think that constantly every day in every conversation every conversation you're in no <laughs> no i swear <laughs> when you look at so bracken records or um edits these episodes be honest Training Tuesdays combined with our guest interviews, what percentage of the talking do you think you do compared to me? Is it that different or is it not? I look at it every time. Okay, what is it? Training Tuesdays generally between 55-45 me and 60-40 me. Okay. Guess we are even or I'm under. Oh, really? Yeah. That makes me feel better. I go bigger chunks without talking and then talk longer when I do talk with the guests. Hmm. And you talk more frequently with less duration. That makes sense. And I, I've noticed that. So, Yeah. It's the beginning or the middle. I'll have chunks of talking because I'll get interested about something. And then I'll sit back and I find myself just listening and mm-hmm. like being a guest on, for them and you. And I always get very excited when I load the three audio files and they have like 90 to 95% of all talking time. I think that's when the, we have our best episodes. So, yeah, I always pay attention to the percentages. Mm-hmm. And, uh, Race Brain, I know I have the highest amount. Yeah, you do. Uh, but on our on our guest interviews, I generally have the lowest amount by just like single digit percentage oh. compared to you. All right. I wonder if that tracks for the audience, if they agree with that or not. I was telling Bracken about my treadmill before we started recording. And then Bracken goes, I want to hear this while we're recording because i maybe there's something in here that could be valuable you don't know what i'm going to say yet actually so this could be a a big flop but i can tell you my story now if you would like i have a guess and whether it goes one way or the other i still wanted to hear it 
with the red button pushed. All right. Well, the red button was pushed for me three minutes and 57 seconds ago. For you, 42 seconds. All right. I was saying, so my treadmill broke on me on Monday, and I've told some embarrassing treadmill stuff lately, like I spray glued the belt. Uh, Nordic Tract, I don't think, listens to this podcast because I just applied to use my warranty, which doesn't expire until June of this year. I re-upped my warranty, so I'm still under warranty. I bought a second warranty because my original expired, so I'm under warranty. Yeah. However, <clears throat> I was running on the treadmill easy, eight miles an hour. My legs were sore as the day, whatever, after the SoCal back-to-back races, and I heard this big crack. Like, I wasn't running, I wasn't pounding, I wasn't at incline, so like one, one to three percent. I heard a big crack under the belt, and then all of a sudden the belt just started moving to the right, like going underneath itself, so like going off center and winding underneath, and I was like, oh, geez, this is not good. And then the belt is grinding. It was weird. It's bunching up, and I was like, oh, crap. And I um, almost hit the front of my treadmill, right, because my feet hit the board underneath the belt moving, which means it would actually propel me forward because I'm hitting solid surface. Anyways... I tried to get that belt back uh, into the center, and I realized that if I put my hands on the handle and only lightly run, the belt would stay on track. So I finished out 30 minutes holding onto the handles and basically like run floating <laughs> because I had no option. It was stupid, and I shouldn't have done it. Because it was negative 20 degrees. There's just no way I was going outside. I wasn't in that mind space. So anyways, the point I was going to get at was this. So for the first time in over a year – I had to go to my gym, which I rent to run my business out of, and use one of the treadmills for a workout there on Wednesday. And for context, on my Nordic track, I had a real bad workout two weeks ago, like either it was post-COVID effects or whatever. And I did three by 10 minutes at 15%. I did 5.5 miles per hour for the first rep. Couldn't even sustain it for the second rep and finished my last rep at five or 4.5 miles per hour. For me, three by 10 minutes, those are metrics that most would laugh at in the top end of our sport. Mm-hmm. For reference, okay, couldn't even hold five, I held 5.5 miles per hour for 10 minutes and it felt like I was racing to reach that 10 minute mark. Fast forward, I go to my gym, I use the regular treadmill. It's a whatever, Star Trek or something. And I decided to do a 15-15 test buy-in, but at like a threshold effort. And then I did some OCR intervals afterwards. Four rounds of something I came up with. I'm going to pause you just like I did last time. I'm going to script this workout out for any new listeners. Treadmill challenge. The treadmill is set to 15% incline, and you run for 15 minutes at whatever pace you want, and you can change it throughout the time for max distance. So you have 15 minutes to get as far as you can get at 15% incline. So it's just an uphill running test. That's it. That's what it is. So now go ahead. Continue. Perfect. So it was the 15-15 test, but not a test because I wasn't going for max to get some fatigue in before. Tempoed it. Tempoed it. Before I do uphill OCR intervals as well, just as like a finisher. Well, I ran 1.50 at six miles per hour. In control, working, but like not racing by any means. When the previous week, so I ran 6.0 miles per hour for 15 minutes, took three minutes rest, and then got back to work and did 25 minutes of OCR rounds, all above or at six miles an hour. Mm-hmm. 
Two weeks earlier, I could not hold 5.5 miles per hour for 15 minutes on my Nordic track, and I had got reduced to five miles an hour for 10-minute intervals. And I was working as my heart rate response was even higher trying to sustain. And we have this. So point being is one, I was like feeling like a real loser on my uphill intervals on my Nordic track. Like my metrics are terrible. And then I go for me personally. And then I go on a regular treadmill, run six miles an hour, hit 1.50 in the treadmill challenge to start a workout with relatively less perceived exertion. And it just went to show me like treadmill calibration cannot be trusted. I don't know if there's an accurate treadmill out there. All I know is like, I consistently have had workouts I haven't been happy with on incline on my Nordic track. And now I'm like, well, of course it is so far off that it's mm-hmm. can't be trusted. And I thought that was noteworthy. And so since my treadmill broke, I'm going to have whoever comes out to fix it, make sure this thing's calibrated. However that works. And I don't know if any of you out there are experiencing that, but my eyes were opened big time, uh, through that, um, you know, shift in treadmills. What are you looking at there? I'm just pulling up something here because there's an answer to this, Kirk. Is there? Even when I was warming up at 1% incline on this new treadmill at the gym, I started at 8 miles an hour, mm-hmm. and it was a walk in the park compared to 8 miles an hour. Like it, it, My treadmill's also off on flat without question. It, it's not discrepant of the incline. My treadmill's just, just off. So anyways, Nordic Track users out there, we've talked about it a number of times, but I can confirm like for sure, at least mine, and it seems to be consistent across the board, Nordic Tracks make you feel like crap about yourself. That's all I needed to get out there. Now what you're going to say? They do. Well, there's an answer to this, but first I'm going to talk about my little experience here because the treadmill challenge is popping up all over the place. Last week when it was Lisa's birthday last weekend and we got away for the weekend and at the hotel... They had a a fitness center, obviously, and I ran on Friday flat outdoor with Lisa. I ran outside for the first time this year. We ran five miles easy in the snow. And so the next day I wanted to do quality, but I did not want to take pounding. So I did two by treadmill challenge with three minutes recovery at like first round 80%, second time, second round 85%. Hmm. And I went like one, three, five, one, four, five. Nice. And that 85% ended above 85% by the end, but... I could not do that on my treadmill at home. Mm-hmm. One three pace to one three five is working very hard for me. And here my first set was one three five, and then I could bump up from there on three minutes recovery. So same exact experience. And also Lisa was running on day two, three there. She was running while I was lifting. And I looked over at her because the treadmill motor was moving so fast and the belt sounded so fast. Like, is she is she racing? It's just the treadmill moves differently compared to our treadmill. I was, it just sounded to every, everything. So even like the, the audio feedback can't be trusted either mm-hmm. because it sounds different than our Nordic track. I don't know what to make of it. Somebody, I'm trying to think who it was. Um, I want to say Bobby Chumbo. Would you remember that? Recognize that name? Mm-hmm. Bobby Chumbo on Instagram. Uh-huh. Well, he messaged me one time after we talked about this. He said, have you heard of the NP? No. Keep going. Chombo don't sell. Well, now I got to know. I have to know now. Yeah, no, it's, I'm just scrolling back. I'm going to find out. It's worth the wait, guys, obviously, to figure this out officially. C-H-O-M-B-O. Okay. You're right. Chombo. I don't know if that's his real name or not. Bobby Chombo. I thought this was like a Sandy Gochoe situation, and we we just... <laughs> the NPE run 
with two N's. N-P-E run. It is a sensor that you place on the outside rail of your treadmill, basically where you at the back end of where you would rest your feet if you were straddling the treadmill. Okay. And it has a sensor on there. And it tracks your your feet, so it gives you your actual speed or pace, yep. your actual cadence, and the actual incline of the treadmill at all times. And it exports to Zwift. I think it exports to Garmin Connect. But it then you can just have your phone or your watch telling you your actual pace, and you just adjust your treadmill's incline and pace to hit what the NPE run tells you is legit. Huh. That would be helpful. And I almost buy it monthly. <laughs> and I still haven't. But then you could take that to any treadmill on Earth. Just carry it with you. It's a small little sensor. Yeah. It's, it's smaller than like a, I don't know. I would I would say it's about the size of a pack of fruit snacks. I don't know what other way to possibly describe that. Really? And then you never have to wonder. Yeah. So you, you could take it to the gym. Well, I'm trying to look this up right now while we're while we're chatting and so they have a couple of different options here but there is nothing on their website that's more expensive than like a hundred bucks so this isn't even an expensive piece of equipment is it it was like 99 dollars the first time i saw it i think yeah so it's a reasonable reasonably priced know why i haven't purchased piece of equipment north pole engineering yeah makes this thing yeah interesting okay npe north pole engineering huh well, that would solve some mystery. Yeah, it would. And then you don't have to play the guessing game. I told Kirk, well, I was running at 1,450 calories per hour here today because that's my equivalent of what my Nordic track says. Like, that's a dumb system to use. I should just get the NPE run. Yeah, I don't know. All I know is I was annoyed, but now I'm not annoyed. Now I feel like, okay. Effort is all you can go by on this Nordic Track treadmill. And I have to imagine a lot of you out there listening, your yeah. treadmills are off either. Some of your treadmills are probably fluffing you up, making you feel like the woman or the man. Like, I am so fast. Why doesn't it translate to outside? I'm so much slower outside. Well, guess what? Your treadmill's probably calibrated wrong the other way. I could see that happening too. Whereas for me, I'm like, I'm always faster outside. Well, now it makes sense. So a little note for you. Sorry, I'm trying to yeah, it's very interesting. To fix my lighting situation here. Also, Justin Hamilton messaged yesterday, and he said, what's your what's your uh, pace chart for what's good on a treadmill challenge? He said, I'm going to test it out. So I just went over that yesterday. So everyone's doing treadmill challenge right now. It's the season. Well, what did you tell him? What did you tell him for this pace chart, what's good on a treadmill challenge? He said, I know it's going to be inaccurate, but just give me your feelings on it. I said, I've always thought 1.50 is the number that someone should shoot for to be a competitive male in OCR. A podium contender in any regional race, I think. At a, Yeah, podium contender at a small race, top 10 contender at a medium race, and you belong in the field at a championship race. 1.50. I think if you can run that, that's really solid fitness for the elite wave of a Spartan race. And then 1.6 and above is you don't ever have to worry about your fitness really showing up to any race anywhere you're probably not going to be the best always but that's just really solid fitness one seven and above is where you start getting to big dog status i think Mm -hmm. at least you can compete with the big dogs and one eight and above is high level uphill running in almost any sport and then one nine and above is world class uphill running regardless not even just ocr outside of it so I want to say, so my PR was 171. 
Mm-hmm. And that was when I was very, very fit. And I was competing at a high level. Uh, Ryan Atkins has gone 1-8 or slightly above. And maybe he could do better now. Sage Canada was in the 1-9s. He's a world-level mountain runner. Mm-hmm. Not the best in the world. And I thought Killian did 199 or 2... Max King went 199 and Killian, I thought, did 202 or 205 or something foolish like that. And he's top three or to five uphill runners in the world. I can't even comprehend that. What pacing is what pacing is a 2.0? That would be 8 miles, eight per, miles hour. per hour at 6% incline. Oh, yeah. oof. At 15% incline. Uh, yeah, right, at 15% incline. <laughs> wow. Now, what we just said matters, though. Not all treadmills are equal. Uh, Forrest, Bo- uh, Forrest Bogue did one one time, and I think he won it or took second with like 135 or 15. And that guy can definitely go one seven or above when he's fit and he was fit. So just whatever treadmill you're on is going to be different, mm-hmm. which is again, why this run sensor would be nice, but it's a good. And then you take what 0.1 away for females, 0.1 to 0.15. Yeah, that's what I would say. Yeah. So that's a rough chart for gauging yourself compared to some of the top uh, endurance athletes in the world. One five starts getting competitive in most races. One eight and above, you're ready to join big boy mountain races at a national level, and one nine and above, you're world class. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I remember the year I won my first Spartan race. It was a flat Spartan race, but I think my treadmill challenge just previous was like one point four six, and then I went out and won the Chicago Super and sprint back to back on like a subpar treadmill challenge. Granted, my flat running was much better and I wasn't working uphill at that point. But yeah, I think that one five zero is the golden, the golden ticket. What do you think about age group male and women? Where would you categorize like, like podium contender age group? It's so tricky because the age groups are all so different. But I, my first fitness goal for anyone is let's get you to one zero. If you can get a full mile on that test, that's very respectable fitness for anybody in any walk of life. Get above one, and then then you can start building work. That's 4.0 miles per hour sustained for 15 minutes at 15%. Yep. yep. And then get up to, towards one, two, five, and I think you're going to be looking at age group podiums. Yeah. Yeah, being able to sustain five miles, 5.0 miles an hour, that is, I believe. Um, I was just curious what you thought there. We didn't plan on getting stuck on this fifteen fifteen test thing, but if you're looking, if you don't follow somebody's programming and you're kind of figuring it out on your own, I don't know if there's a better litmus test uh, as far as stay power goes. I think it's even more tra- it translates even better to OCR if you're one of our OCR listeners than like a five k time trial. It's like whatever your fifteen fifteen test, it kind of reduces you to your worst like feeling. And, and your most labored stride and all yeah. of that. And I would say the fifteen fifteen test and improving there will absolutely be a direct correlation to how well you can perform out on an OCR course versus the 5K sometimes doesn't always translate. I think that's the most accurate pure run test to know how your OCR fitness is coming along or hybrid probably too. I agree. And it feels identical to running a 5K time trial or a 5K race. It is the same exact thing. Every five minutes, like your stage is going through each mile in a 5K race or time trial. It works almost the same exact cardiovascular system and respiratory. And you're right. It reduces you. You can't bound or run Mm -hmm. pretty at 15 for longer than like a minute or two. And so you're just reduced to your reduced form 
very early on, and then you have to grind. It's grindier than a 5K time trial. And it also, when it's executed appropriately, feels kind of like a joke for two minutes. And then you sit for like five minutes in this like, oh, am I going to be able to pick this up at some point? Am I, it might be all right. And then seven to eight minutes, you go, oh, crap, what just happened? And then you have like a seven-minute just uh, – if it's done appropriately, I hate to say it, but it's a version of like hanging on for like at least the last five minutes. Oh, at best. Uh-huh. That's where it's different than a 5K because it feels so comfortable. The right pacing for you feels very comfortable for two to three minutes. Whereas in a 5K, if I get after it aggressively, I already know I'm like, I'm, I'm purposefully moving three minutes into that race. Like, okay, like this, my pedal's down in the, in the treadmill challenge. I don't feel that really. Hmm. Yeah. In a, in a 5K time trial, I might know at the mile I'm starting to fatigue, but I generally feel no matter what pace I'm running, okay through the mile. Like this, I'll be able to go. This is fine. In the treadmill challenge, within two minutes, I'm starting to regret life choices. Oh, not me. Not when I've done well. I should have done more. I should (laughs) have started this aggressive. I'm the exact opposite. Well, I just have to hit it on a treadmill, not a Nordic track, and maybe you won't regret any life choices. You'll be like, oh, yeah, I'm fit. It's cool. It'll be good. Well, my PR came on a star track. Mm. Maybe something to it. I think one five five is the highest I've hit on a Nordic track, and I went one seven one on a Star Trek. In, I would say, close to equivalent fitness. I might have been fitter when I did the one five five than I was the one seven one. Wouldn't that be demoralizing if you couldn't? I mean, most people won't be able to acknowledge the difference in treadmills because why would you know that? So, I've told you this before, and I think I've said it on here, but I came home from Colorado after a year and a half there. I'd already done 171 at home. Now I'm out in Colorado for a year, year and a half at altitude running mountains. And my Nordic track is still in the basement. And I said, I'm going to try to hit 1.8. And so I started. And within five minutes, I had it down to 1.55 pace. And by eight minutes, I quit. Yeah. I couldn't do it. Mm -hmm. It was so demoralizing not being able to run better and then dropping back and not even being able to run worse. So that's real, that difference. Well, hopefully this will strike for like one to five people listening, and then I hope it makes your life much more manageable. And the rest of you, thanks for putting up with that conversation. If anything, it it should inspire you to go hit the 15-15 treadmill challenge because um, I'm starting to realize that's the gold standard of state power, in my opinion, more than the 5K even. Um, do you want to do you want to introduce what we're kind of talking about today? Did we have anything else we wanted to add in before we chat? No, no real transition. Just switching lanes over. This is a topic I've wanted to talk about for a while, probably over a year. But it's it's a training Tuesday topic. But I don't believe we can fit it in the confines of a training Tuesday uh, one hour or less. So finally, I just said, Kirk, I'd like to do this long form. And he was gracious enough to begrudgingly no. accept it. It's, it's, the topic is basically, it's a question you've heard from many, many people in many different forms, but they're all speaking to the same thing, which is how do I individualize my training as I progress? But the question comes in the form of, all right, my, I was progressing really, really quickly and now I've stagnated. What do I do? Or I had a great training block last year. Should I just repeat it this year? Or I feel really good in training and then I do my final couple week taper and I arrive 
with worse metrics. Mm. My heart rate variability is worse or my heart rate response in workouts isn't as good or I, and I don't race well, or I still never nailed a peak or, um, just some version of I'm doing something but it's not giving me necessarily what I want. And I don't know if it's ideal for me or I'm running this program. Someone else runs, but they're improving on it quicker than I am. It's basically what stage of training am I in? And is it appropriate to be doing what I'm doing or should I be thinking about it differently? And you can see why this can't be done in one training Tuesday, because each one of those could be their own training Tuesday. Mm -hmm. But this, like the global concept of is my training built for me in this moment is what I want to talk about. And it's going to be conversational and meandering, but how do you determine if you're training appropriately for you? I think this is going to be a muddy episode with moments of clarity is what I think it's going to be. But that's, that is training, right? And that is um, periodization sometimes. And we don't always have the right answer. And most of those answers come in hindsight, not in foresight. And that's why this is all worth chatting out. You just you just said like six different things that we could spend 30 minutes on each. And this could be a four-hour episode, which, yeah, you know, it's not going to be. So we'll do it the service we can. When you uh, mentioned this topic to me, you know what I thought? Like the one thing I wanted to hone in on the most is what um, everybody gets to this point in their training and it's at some point is you have your Mm -hmm. newbie gains. And as you mentioned, just before you see rapid improvement and things are clicking and you feel great about yourself because things are just, everything's getting generally better. Mm -hmm. And then those newbie gains slow and they slow. And even you might even regress a little because you got over fatigue now or that you're not, you're confused and it's going to stop or it's going to slow to a trickle. And then you're sitting there going, now what? Like, am I getting worse? I'm not improving anymore. And then that's where like the puzzle piece moving really matters. Making the decision, do I push harder or do I rest? Do I focus on my turnover because I feel slow or do I dig into threshold work? Do I up my mileage, lower my mileage? What the heck do I do? And so I always think of like this conversation, like the underlying theme is like, I'm not, I'm realizing I'm not improving like I'd like to or any like to anymore. And how do I navigate that crossroads? And it happens to me every season as a tenured runner. Yeah. It's it's at some point like, well, this workout isn't much better than it was a month ago. What do I need to do to rattle the cage appropriately? And so so I bump up another level in fitness. And so I think it boils down to that umbrella. And then all those little things, all those things you talked about are underneath that umbrella, right? But really it comes to like progressing to the next level. So that's how I looked at it, if that makes yeah. sense. Yeah, and the way I see it in my mind is that there are two big questions every athlete needs to be able to answer about themselves. And one is kind of what you just talked about. What stage of my progression am I in? Am I a novice? Am I intermediate? Am I advanced? Those are kind of the three accepted big stages you fall into as an athlete. And then also, what type of athlete am I? Am I fast twitch? Am I slow twitch? Am I a bit of mixed? Do I respond well to hills or flats? Do I lack skill or do I lack power? Breaking down those two questions, what type of athlete am I and what stage of my athletic journey am I in? That starts to give us now some structure to where we go. And this is highlighted to me by uh, whenever I think about this or I think about We've talked about what were our biggest mistakes as a coach or regrets. Uh, I have something that's not 
necessarily a coaching thing, but is at the same time. And I just kind of want to share this story about it. It's not a long story, but that kind of frames my perspective on this. And that is we were at the press conference the day before the inaugural Tahoe World Championships for Spartan Race. It's the first time they switched away from the East Coast on Killington. They moved out to Tahoe. And because I was highly ranked in the sport at the time and had had a good season the last two seasons, I was on the press conference panel. And I think it was Cody Moat, John Albin, probably Hobie Call. Maybe Hobie wasn't there that year. Amelia Boone, Corinna Coffin I saw up there. Ryan Atkins. Atkins. Yeah, just all the great people in the sport and myself, <laughs> basically. And maybe Matt Novakovich might have April been April D was up there, I think. April D, yeah. So we're sitting up there at a panel. Were you there in the audience? No, but they show video from that press conference on stuff from time to time. Like watching the old Spartan okay. Rewinds back, they'll show that panel once in a while. Okay. Well, I knew my role up there, and so I sat back for a while. I knew I wasn't in position to win the race. I wasn't the biggest star in the sport, and I know I don't mind answering questions. So I said, sit on your hands, just let it go. And from time to time, there was a lull in the conversation, and so I'd say something. But someone they kept asking about how you peak for a big event, and you're getting a lot of the cookie-cutter answers. And I decided that I would speak. So I said, I just want to say that... I've tried a lot of those other things and they didn't work super well for me, but I've noticed I perform the best in workouts and in surprise races in the middle of my preemptive peak block of training, not preemptive, but the one right before it, the penultimate block of training. When I'm doing my biggest volume, my biggest workouts, I'm still grinding. I'm not getting sharp yet. When I jump into a race or a big workout, then I pop things. And oftentimes I struggle later in that. So I've kind of just given up on peaking. And so I just want to, to anyone out there who's listening that struggles with peaking, know it's okay to race in that third stage of training. Hmm. And I was happy with that in the moment. And looking back, I'm happy with it as well, but I was right for the wrong reason. What I've learned since then is not that I need to peak by not peaking. It's that I didn't know how to peak for my physical skill set and training style type and my stage of training. It was, I didn't know better. So I just raced at the stage of training I knew got me ready, but I didn't know how to cap it off. Yeah. So rather than learning, I just cut it short and said, I know this will work. And maybe I didn't get all the way there, but in listening to other people talk and in reading more and in learning more, I realized that As a low-volume, fast-twitch-based athlete, when I moved from threshold work and power work and my peak volume, when I moved down in volume and started adding intensity, I detrained. I actually got worse because I wasn't challenging the systems that I needed to be challenging in order to perform well at long races. Mm-hmm. Whereas someone like a Ryan Atkins can sharpen up with 60, 90, three minute, 60 second, 90 second, three minute intervals hard with big rest before a long race and it primes his system. I have to prime my system with more of grindy threshold, longer work. I didn't understand what that meant. I just knew one didn't work and I didn't know why. So in that moment, I couldn't grasp what stage I was in and what my actual skill set as an athlete meant for my training. 
And now seven years later, I have a better handle on what I would need to do to incite that change in me prior to a race. So that's, that's me asking myself as a coach a question. These are the kind of questions we get of people not being able to self-identify what they need. Well, and that goes against all traditional typical recommendations or knowledge that is thrown out there. Everybody assumes, and we, we can be product of this at times as well. You lower volume, you increase intensity, you run shorter duration <laughs> intervals with more rest to sharpen in quotes, and then you show up with this new speed, but still the engine you worked hard to build, and that's called a peak, and then you go run your face off and feel like glorious, right? In an ideal world yeah. that's like linear, but that isn't how, and you're the exact same way as I am. That's right. But it's also, well, it's right for some, yeah. but not all. Yeah, it's right for anyone who it's right for. Right. And so I'm more like you as well, as I've realized. In fact, and this episode is not about tapering or anything like that, but for me, it's a reverse taper. If I care about something, the reverse taper, the week of the race, I kind of dive right back into training. I remember having a conversation with Ian Hosick in 2018. Hmm. Um, and we were just talking with drinks one night after like the Seattle race. I had a break. I took fourth and I had a good race for me and we were chatting. I kind of break and broken through in my eyes and his eyes there. And we were just back at the hotel. I think bullshit me and him. And we did that. We've done that a few times in the past, just talking like philosophy and whatever. And he's like, what'd you do this week leading into the race? And I was like, well, I ran 10 miles on Monday, eight miles on Tuesday. I did 20 minutes of intervals on Wednesday. He's like, dude, that is way too much. What are you thinking? He's like, wait. He's like, I'll do eight minutes of work on Wednesday. I'll do nothing on mon Monday. And I was like, well, right. And I used to do that too. Mm -hmm. And then I show up not ready to race. And traditional thought, he was, and his, his is valid. But for me, his race week is what I do the entire week prior. It's like two weeks out, I deload, mm -hmm. let that soak in, and then pays off a week later. So, for example, for me, I found the reverse taper works much better. Deload a full week out, then the week of the race, ramp back up into normal training, and my body's just primed and ready, yeah. soaked up that. So, for example, that would be my little lesson within your lesson that I have learned. And it's like we want all of you to be able to figure that out for yourself. So that's like kind of we're trying to give you the tools to be able to do that mm -hmm. today, right? Yeah. So – the, the general start to an endurance athlete, let's just call it a runner. The general start to a runner is that they begin doing something. And oftentimes, whatever that thing is, is chosen at random, even if it's chosen intentionally. So a third, man, probably 50% or more of the time, that thing is you just go out and run and try to get better at running every single day. Mm -hmm. And you do for a while and then it stops and then you find a coach or you find a training plan online or you talk to someone and you write your next thing or you learn it yourself and move on or you start right away with a group or a training partner or someone and you follow what they tell you to do but at the beginning unless you just had a muscle biopsy done and lab testing there's no way to pair the perfect training to you as a novice as a beginner so you do something anything and it's very successful as long as you stay healthy because anything you do when you're untrained works mm -hmm. but the issue that that causes is that a it teaches you what works for you in a limited scope and b it stops working eventually 
or it becomes less effective. So when you get to the, the point to write the next block of training, or you go right into coaching early into your running career, your framework for what works is what worked for you. And what worked for you was working only because you were a novice. It's not necessarily tied to your skill set or your fast versus slow twitch muscle type. It worked because anything was going to work. And so you now have a, have a core belief about what works in running that might be deeply flawed and may not follow you effectively into your transition from novice to intermediate. So that's, I think, the general start to almost all of us. Mm-hmm. And we all have to run into that point and realize, hopefully, that your logic is based on a sample size of one and anything was going to work. Yeah. And the one exception to this, actually, so I just want to like, so we can clear that off the table is when you're developing as like a young person. So let's say you're a freshman in high school and you go out for the cross country or track team and you run three miles every day. You just go out and run three miles. Well, because you're developing as a human being and growing still, especially males anyways, women can get a little more cloudy with like puberty and body development, but you could run three miles every day and be better as a sophomore as you were as a freshman, better as a junior as you were as a sophomore, and better as a senior as you were as a junior, be sheer because you're, you're becoming like an adult human who's capable of more work. So we're not really yes. speaking to, I mean, yes, we need, we're speaking to you if you're younger and listening to this, but let's just leave that out of the equation because um, I know that you can go run three miles four times a week for four years and get better when you're still developing. That's off the table. Right. These are for people who have, or are beyond that stage of their life. So I just, I don't know. It would bother me if I didn't get that out there. That's all. That's a good point. Be the one exception. I'm glad you did. And yet, if you follow that example out on a far enough, a long enough timeline, this reapplies to them Mm -hmm. because if they pick running up later, they're going to know what worked for me in the past. Correct. (laughs) They're going to go right back to whatever that thing was. It was either we ran intervals three times a week with 20 minute runs and I got fast. I broke five in the mile. I could do that again. Or like you said, we ran four miles every day for four years and I just kept PRing. So I respond to just steady volume work. Mm -hmm. But you're probably wrong. Yeah, probably. So why don't we talk about that, that junction then right away where wherever it is, we feel like we're, we're not getting better. Or, or, or it's now it's cloudy. Like yeah. one, like or you look back over the past three months and you're like, well, my 5K was about the same or maybe a little slower or maybe three seconds faster, which isn't like enough for you. You're like, was that just yeah. a good day versus? So we're at this junction where we're like, okay, like how do I, how do I move the needle where I don't feel like it's moving anymore or headed the wrong direction or not heading yeah. forward enough? What, let's start there. Yeah. So that junction is between novice and intermediate. Beginner versus secondary. That's 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 the junction right there where the free, easy work no longer moves the needle. And at that point right there, it's important. I think the first thing you need to do is write down what you can do right then in that moment at every major distance. One mile, 5K, 10K, half marathon, marathon. Like your PRs or your potential? Is that what you're referring your PRs to? PRs or your best guess at what you could do right now. Okay. And if you don't know, maybe you have to jump into one or just, you can't use a predictor though. That's the key there. You can't use a prediction uh, app or anything like that or calculator. You have to know what you can do right now. Mm -hmm. That is the single most important step, I believe, of determining what your next step is. Because we will all have a graph 
of your 5K pace and then your 10K pace and then your half marathon and your marathon. And it's all going to look different. There's going to be a drop off somewhere. It's either going to be a clean decline or it's going to be pretty steady or it's going to be drastic at some distance. And that's your first clue towards what you need in your next stage of training. So I don't know if you want to go anywhere with that, Kirk, but I I think that's, if you have a counter to that, I think that's the first important thing. Find out, A, what are my strengths and weaknesses right now? And B, what does that tell me about my internal makeup? Am I clearly a fast twitch athlete? Am I clearly underdeveloped aerobically? Am I clearly an endurance monster with no foot speed? But you can't really hide those things. If you go and run 20 to 30 miles a week for a year or two, you find out if you're an endurance monster or if you're a speed-based athlete based on what I could do in a marathon, a 5K, a 10K, and a mile. That's my belief. Yeah, the one large hole I find in that, and I agree with you, by the way, so I think that's a, a solid recommendation. I want to run with that, actually. But it's like if you are going from novice to intermediate, like I don't know if you have enough perspective to be like, well, I ran a 5K here, but my half marathon is this. Like, Is that a normal drop-off or is it not? Like, What expectations are for deciding, oh, I'm a better miler than a half marathoner, Like, knowing what the drop-off should be? And I think we should just walk people through that right now real quick. If we walk through like – okay. Because I think a lot of people listening don't know. I think a lot of good athletes don't know they're listening. Like good athletes, meaning like top pros might be like, I don't know. Like, is this an acceptable drop off from my 5K to my half marathon? I don't know. So why don't we walk through it? Why don't we walk through as you are a five minute miler? You know, your miles five. You just tested your miles five minutes. What's an accept? Like what would be if you had even fitness, you were just as good on the short end as you are on the long end what would you say would be a nice trend a nice different differential in pace between the distances so this is right away it gets tricky because you're going to get different answers from different people well, right so i almost don't think my opinion matters sure it does people listen to this podcast for your opinion <laughs> then i would say it's right it's somewhere between 17 minutes and 18 minutes in a 5k now a predictor would say faster than that but i would say let's call it 1730 is about a five minute mile in my mind. I'm actually going to use a predictor right now, but I'm going to say a five minute mile is equivalent to a 1735k. And I don't mean to distract from our task at hand, which is helping you break through, but understanding your metrics is a good point you brought up and understanding maybe what end of your, your sword needs sharpening and so or work. Yes. So five minute pace. So I'm going to use the V dot calculator. Okay, well, that's accepted as... And uh, that's accepted as an accurate calculator by many. 1711 5K. And what pace is that? That's what matters. That's what I want people to hone in on. 532 per mile. Okay. And so what I was going to say, that ca- that tracks with what I had thought and you had thought. If you're a five-minute miler, I roughly believe take 30 seconds per mile, add that on, and that's that, should, that would track in your 5K. So if you're a five-minute miler, or let's say you're a yeah. seven-minute miler, Let's just use these as generalities. It's not going to be perfect as the pacing gets slower, but 30 seconds per mile slower. Well, that as well. 30 seconds per mile slower from your mile time trial to your pacing for your 5K. Yeah. In the VDOT calculator here, I believe this is based off Jack Daniels running formula. Mm-hmm. 
a five minute mile, you add 32 seconds on to get your 5k pace for a seven minute miler. It's 739 for a 5k. So a 39. So you're still in the ballpark. It's starting to atrophy a little bit because of percentage, yep. but yeah. okay. So let's do this for people. So they understand. So let's go, let's do three. Let's do okay. your 5k or your mile, 5k, 10k half marathon. I think we should do all of those for people to understand. So I'm, we're on a seven minute miler right now. Seven minute mile is equivalent to five or sorry, 739 pace for the 5k, 756 pace for a 10k, and 838 pace for a marathon. For a full marathon. Yes. So a full marathon, you should be able to run a minute and a half per mile slower than your all out mile, roughly. That's what it says here. If you're, if you're maximizing potential. Okay. I actually think that gap should be tightened a little bit, but. Let's go five minute mile, five minute mile, 532 per mile for a 5k, 544 per mile for a 10k and 617 that tracks for a marathon. That tracks better in my eyes. What about you? And this is where it gets tricky for me because I think to the, all the people like in high school that I coached who broke five in a mile. You're obviously way underdeveloped, mm. but they could maybe break five in a mile. They could maybe for a 5K run 17.11, but many of them couldn't. And they couldn't hold 6.17 pace for more than four or five miles, right. let alone 26. So, so obviously- But that would tell you what end of this, that's the point. Right. Where where is the get, Where do you not track with these general guidelines? And this isn't gospel, but it's a starting point. Correct. Right. So for me, exactly. Now let's, let's take, well, I was going to say my blanket statements from my own metrics. And I think I'm pretty balanced right now compared to times in the past. 30 seconds per mile slower for the 5k, 45 seconds per mile slower for the 10k roughly per mile. And then uh, a minute to a minute 15 slower for the marathon per mile. And this is all based off your mile all out time trial. I think when you're running sub six pace in general, that just seems to align for me about perfectly. And when I go out, that seems to be what I hit. And that's pretty close to what you're describing. It's a little different, but those were the general, without pulling up that calculator, that's what I was going to toss out there. Yeah. So let's say, and, and I know you want to get to a point. No, no, no. Let's keep following this. But let's say you're a five minute miler, but you're running 545 pace for your 5k. And then you're running 615 pace for your 10k. That would absolutely tell me like, for example, okay, we got to work on your threshold running like big time. Like those short intervals might be nice, but we got to spend some time big time and threshold to improve, to tighten that gap. And this is going to be a long way to get to our point, but I think it's important. So that would just be one example. Cause yeah, I'm not saying you should be exactly following what Bracken's saying or what I'm saying, as far as progression goes on the pacing front, we're actually looking for the holes. We're trying to find like, okay, where is the low hanging fruit and, or and that will help guide your yeah. decision. So anyways, go, go ahead with what you're saying. Well, what I was going to say is that most commonly you're going to see the drop off as the distance gets longer because most commonly the engine, the aerobic capacity, the volume of your training is underdeveloped. However, this is where step two is, which is identify what you've been doing in training. If you've been running decent volume and no speed work and you're still better at the mile than the 5k and the 10k that tells us you are probably an athlete who has a higher percentage of fast twitch muscle fibers mm. if you've been doing lots of speed work with your track club two to three times a week and pretty low volume 
but your 10k is still better correlation wise between uh between the 5k and the mile you get better as it goes longer you probably have a higher percentage of slow twitch muscle fibers you respond well to grinding to doing longer stuff so even when you've been given some speed you're still better at the other thing so looking at what you've done there is step two here are here are where my plots are on the chart here's where it says i should be how did i get here because if you have a clear i got here doing the thing that should make me better at this you know what to work on on the other side i've done all interval work no volume it's time to drop interval work slightly and raise volume and then we retest and see what happened mm-hmm. that's a clean data point if you get there by saying i've done big volume very little speed work i'm still better at speed work that's a clean data point all right now it's time to do something else but if you get there and say i'm not entirely sure then you're probably still a novice if you don't have a structured block of training and a training history to look up and say this is why i've arrived here now you get to start with anything and still get your noob gains out of that if you've just been sporadically doing things, you still don't have a clean data point. And so now you get to say, I'm actually not intermediate yet. I still get free gains ahead. That's cool. Let's just try anything and do it consistently for a few months and see what happens. So I think that's stage two. Identify what got you to this set of data points. Well, yeah. And I don't think a lot of these type of runners are listening, meaning like the true novice. I think we're going to be more in the intermediate. So a lot of these have gone through this phase or they're stuck in that like Mm-hmm. that transition but to your point if you're somebody who's like i go out and run like four to six miles four times a week right and i do that and i've done that for yeah. years and i've gotten better and now i'm stagnating you're exactly right you know what go run 10 miles once a week now and do everything the same but just go longer once or twice you're going to see improvement or continue four mm-hmm. to six miles but make one or two of those sessions interval training you're going to see improvement so you're right it's like yep. Those deviations, you're you're still in the novice category. We're talking to the people who have already done that, right? I've gone further. I've implemented interval work. I've yeah. tried threshold running. I'm doing all that, and I'm that transition happens after all the things I just talked about is how I look at this. I assume you do too. Yes. Correct. So it's like that, that junction. I wanted to make sure that everyone now is confident which camp they're in. Mm-hmm. I didn't want people progressing as if I'm intermediate, but you actually might not be yet. Right. And novice doesn't mean bad. It means new. It means new to what you're doing. So ideally, (laughs) you would milk the novice stage as long as you could, because when you're a novice, you're progressing quickly through almost any stimulus. It is not a bad, it's not a check in the bad, bad column. It means you have a huge ceiling to explore. Milk it. There is no rush to get to intermediate and no rush to get to advanced. You don't want to get there too quick because it means now you're reduced down to like half a percent of improvement a year is a really good thing. I know I've used this example before, but I don't know what the percentage, but I ran 60 to 70 miles a week, two quality sessions a week, plus a long run for an entire year. And in one year's time, my time in like the 1500 went from 356.3 to 354.7, which is... 1.6 seconds better. And I trained tirelessly without injury mm-hmm. for 365 days for 1.5 seconds. What's that percentage bracken? 0.05% improvement. And that's when you're starting to get to those points of like between intermediate and advanced trying to figure out like, yeah, it's a lot of work to get better. Somebody, somebody, what was it? I got a message. Like I did all this work for four months 
and I got like seven seconds better. Josh Chase. Is that who? Oh, that's what it was. What What was his message? He trained a whole year for like 20 seconds in a 10K and he was bummed. It's like, is that worth it? Or is that the right return? It could be depending on what stage you're in, right? Yeah. Yeah. If you're a novice, that's frustrating. If you're intermediate, that's up to you. And if you're advanced, you're throwing a freaking party for 20 seconds at a 10K. Well, 20 seconds at the top end is like the difference between not even making the Olympic fi- final and maybe being an Olympic gold medalist. It's like, yeah, 20 seconds. That's that's yeah. worth 10 years of training. Yeah. But anyways, um, do you want to go somewhere? Otherwise, I have where I figured we should go next with this. But um, Yeah, let's go, let, let's, let's go next now. Now we've established you're either beginner, you're novice, and congratulations. Pick something and that seems interesting and ride it out for a while until you rejoin this junction point. Mm-hmm. Now we've established if you're still interested, you're intermediate or you're advanced now, or you want to know what happens when you get to that point. And I think the big thing I just want to sh- shove down your throats again is the fact that like, because you're doing interval training or because you're making some sort of purposeful decisions, not like, Hey, I'm layering in long runs. I'm doing intervals or speed sessions. That doesn't move you to the next camp. That is like the, that, end stage of the novice camp, right? I think so. Yeah. And so then you get to the, okay, like I'm staying, I've done like, I think I've added in long runs. I've done that good. I've added in my intervals and I'm still, now I'm, I'm back to being stuck sort of. So that's the juncture I'm viewing us at. Yeah. And then it's like, okay, how do you make that training? Like what are the, the, the categories you need to look at to be like, okay, where is my next move. Like, do you, do you have some bullet points? I have a few. Like if you're at that juncture, how, what do we look at specifically? Let's start, let's start with yours. Okay. Okay. So we're at that juncture again. We haven't improved. How long do you think, how long do you think is reasonable for somebody to be like, I'm not improving. I need to change something like three months, six months, a year. Cause people are quick to make that decision and then they break through and don't know how or why. Right. And so what do you think stagnation Mm -hmm. like is true? How long does that take? It depends on each stage, right? So if you're a novice, you probably are going to improve for years before you need to have a, an intervention on training. Once you're into intermediate, I would say six months to a year is is right around that stage. You've got to see something through for that long to be able to really see what it does to you. Now, that that could be argued from many different angles, and I'm open to that, but Early on, let's let's say if it's a 10-year progression to get to advanced or expert, your first three to four years are novice. Mm-hmm. And your next three to four are probably intermediate. So if you're going to spend three to four years in that, you can divide that up into several blocks of doing the same thing and then several blocks of doing the next thing. I think it's months before you can give up on anything or not give up, but have to do something big. What about you? Yeah, I agree. I think people that are like, oh, I'm a novice then. Like I'm only like three years into this or whatever. This has nothing to do with your acumen. This has nothing to do with your intelligence. This has nothing to do with your athlete IQ. This has everything to do with just the amount of time you've been putting on your running shoes and running as much as anything. It has nothing to do with how smart or dumb you are with your training. It has everything to do with like, have you gone through the four years of high school before you're allowed to go to college? Like it's kind of like that, right? There have been novice world champions. 100%. You can show up, be a freak of nature, and two years later, be on top of the Olympic medal stand, but be a baby 
to use a Fred Clary terms, in terms of your training life. You're still responding to novice stimulus. That's fine. That's great. That is best case scenario. That's best case. I was going to say that is best case scenario because your ceiling is limitless yeah. at this point. Okay. Well, I just wanted to get that out there. I don't want anybody to be like offended because you're calling them a novice because I could see that happening. Somebody oh. being like, oh, they're. And you can go backwards. I think I reached advanced when I was near the, like in the 2016, 17, 18. I think I reached borderline advanced or expert in terms of my personal development as an endurance athlete. Oh, but just just had started to sneak into it and i am firmly back in intermediate and some of my skills are in novice stage right now same they'll jump back to intermediate very quickly but you can move backwards on the progression with time off so it's not purely a time thing either i see i told you this is going to be muddy at times so this is going to be muddy with it's moments muddy. of clarity but that's <laughs> why we're chatting it out you just muddied the waters but you're right yes um that was a point I just really wanted to make about it's more about still more time related than like how smart or dumb or how much you care about the sport or no, it's not has nothing to do with that. It has to do with stopping responding to stimulus. That's what I feel it has to do. Like you're not. Pro- that's exactly what I was going to say. That's all it has to do with. If you can be a novice world champion, heck yeah. Do you remember Michael Phelps when 19 Olympic gold medals, whatever it is, already had. 13 gold medals before he even picked up a weight and said, the next thing I need to do is weight train in the off season to continue my progression. Michael (laughs) Phelps may have won 13 gold medals in the novice category. And I, I I'm being dead serious before he went to the intermediate or advanced had to do more because he was stagnating. So he's like, what's the next step? Coach was like strength training and some other stimulus. I don't know. And that happened like eight years into his career. So he would be an example of like the novice, for example, that kept gaining, gaining, gaining um, before he he had to make a, a big switch. So that would be a prime example. Can you think of any others? Well, then there's like the, the muddier version of that, which is Usain Bolt. Usain Bolt was a 400-meter runner as a high schooler. Yeah. And somewhere around like 18 or 19 made the switch down to the 200 and eventually wound up the world record holder in the 100. So in terms of his training life, he was into well into intermediate, if not advanced as a 400 meter runner, but in terms of sprinting technique and coming out of the block skill and the drive of being a 100 meter dash runner, he was a novice in that while he was intermediate to advanced at the 400. And he won his first global medal when he was absolutely intermediate at the 100 in terms of training and technician or technicality of his starts. He almost never was a great starter, but he was at a different stage in other areas. So the water, the water is muddy when you start adding skill and strength and everything. So we got our point across there. I'm glad we said all that because that resonated with me even for some reason to do mm-hmm. some self-analytics. Um, yeah. So you asked me, this is like five minutes ago about the juncture. Now, how do we, our talking points to make our decision, like what to do next? Yeah. Well, ruffling the feathers is the simplest way I can put it. We are creatures of habit. We get stuck in our ways. We know what's familiar. We are very reliant on what has worked in the past, as you've alluded to. And we have to take that and we have to shake it all up and be like, okay, Something needs to change. Mm -hmm. My feathers need to, I need to be uncomfortable. So the first 
talking point on that would be like, okay, look at what you've been doing for training. You've now decided you're pretty much stagnant. And then you have to make a pretty firm and committed decision on something you're going to try. You're four day a week, a runner. Well, let's go to five and work to six. Have you solely been relying on your treadmill five days a week, for example? Well, now I can only lean on it twice. I am so comfortable Mm -hmm. with my 400s, 800s, miles. I've been doing that forever. Well, have you ever thought about doing three by three mile repeats? Have you ever thought about extending your long run another 45 minutes? Have you ever, but something that's going to shake the stimulus. And this is all irregardless of the fact that you probably just need to do nothing for two weeks and start over because you're tired. And I still firmly believe when people stagnate, they're better off resting and then getting back to work. And that might be enough to let you metabolically reset and propel again. So we're going to leave that out of it because I've pounded the rest thing down people's throats since day one. And I'm still a firm believer that if you're not getting better, take a break at any stage, novice, intermediate, advanced. Um, But let's leave that off the, the table. So then you look at that. So a big committed shift in one, two, three, I don't know what it needs to be. But a notable uptick, downtick, reinfusion, new new stimulus, something you have not been able to to quantify yes. doing. It's the first thing I would step in with. Yeah. Yeah. So let's let's take a look at me, for example. When I was in the intermediate stage, I was doing a lot of what I was doing in college. All my quality days were interval based. I had started to dabble in slower paces, but slow for me meant running 10K pace for mile reps. Because everything you did was fast, over speed training at that point. Yeah, yeah. It was all very anaerobic. Even 10K pace for six by mile is a big workout. Mm-hmm. That's a very it's big a huge workout. workout. Especially when I started doing compromised work, you know, 15 burpees into mile at 10K pace. That's a big effort. So I was, I was continuing to evolve in the way I did my intervals. I made them longer. I used to do only intervals up to 400 meters in length. I moved them up to 800 and 1200 in mile, but I was still doing them fast. And I started doing compromised running, but my compromised running was all done fast. And when I got into my first ultra or my first, it wasn't even an ultra at the time. It was just the Spartan race world championships was going to take you three and a half hours to finish early on. When I started to do big workouts for that, I started PRing shorter distances. I PRed my 5K and my post-collegiate road mile while training for the Spartan Race World Championships by doing grindy hill sessions, big hill and carry sessions, uh, longer, started to do tempo and cut down work. I did less of the things I had built up a lifetime of doing, and I started ruffling the feathers by working on that other end of the spectrum, the things that I was uncomfortable doing and wasn't good at. And as soon as I started working on those, I ran, for me, legitimately fast in other things. And that not only does that show that I needed to work on it, it gives you confidence that you're not going to get worse at what you're good at by working on complementary skills. That's a good point. Would you, this is going to be incorrect, and again, muddy episodes, just roll with it. Could it be as simple as saying, okay, I'm at this juncture. I'm frustrated with my improvement. I need to do more of what I like the least. Could it be as simple as that for a lot of people? As in like, God, I hate going out and running hard for a long period of time, a.k.a. threshold or tempo work. Like, 
would, would it would that work for 50 75 percent of people because i think it would yeah because what do we generally like we generally like that which comes easy to us or that which we're good at Mm-hmm. So if you took a, a cross-section of runners, let's say you gathered 500 runners into a convention hall and you said, all right, stand on the left side if you prefer short, spicy workout intervals and stand on the right side if you like a, a good 60-minute tempo run mm-hmm. and you divided them up and then you went down and you did muscle biopsies of every single one. I would say you'd have a confidence rate. You'd be up over 80% of people would have self-sorted into the fast twitch and slow twitch camp yep. by what they preferred, by what they liked to do. And the thing we like to do also pairs with our skill set. And so we respond pretty quickly to it. Yep. And then we stagnate on it. Really quickly to it. Yep. And then we want to do more to it because we like it and we knew we got better doing it. But you become a hard gainer then. And I do this thing, I like it, but now I have to do more and more and more to get any return on my investment. And so if people would switch sides of the wall and say, I'm going to do the thing that I don't enjoy the most, you have a high percentage of getting it right on the thing that you're missing. I couldn't agree more. And I think if you took those camps, you let them sort themselves out and they said, great, short camp, you're going on the other side, long camp, you're going on the other side. Let's go get to work. You'd see Mm -hmm. the biggest overall improvement from the subject study. So I think that's a really good point. You would. Mm -hmm. And the thing that you're naturally drawn to, or you feel I can grind pretty well, but I'm sucky at slow stuff or fast stuff, vice versa. The biggest thing is you're right. Your natural body tendencies is really good at maximizing and you see gains and reward for your effort really quickly. And then it's just like plateaus done. It's like, I got better in six weeks. I went from here to here and I feel great and I'm race ready. And it ends right there. It always just ends. You, you corner yourself, which is what we're trying to avoid. So but can I give some tangibles here? Are you going to keep talking theory? I, yeah. Let's talk theory if you want. Let's keep rolling. No, I want to go tangibles too. So start with that and I want to piggyback you. Okay. Tangibles. We're there. We're stuck. We're going to make some training decisions. That's what we've come to. We've done all the things we think we're supposed to do, the long runs, the intervals. You're up to speed now, listener, at this point. From my experience, and granted, you're rested, you're not overtrained, you got your blood biomarkers done, your vitamin D, iron, all that's great. You know, weird things like that matter. Peace of mind is big. I've sent like half a dozen athletes to get blood work in the last month because I think they need it, if anything, for peace of mind. So we decided you're not not getting better because all those things, we've done all the, all the things. Um, now you get to move to intermediate. I think the best place to start, granted, all the things I just said are checked, the boxes are checked is you go to the higher this is this is very biased this is not fact you go to the higher volume on your quality efforts is step one i'm used to doing four miles of interval work my tempo runs are four to five miles my long runs are 12 to 13 whatever it is you say all right i'm going to take my highlights from each week and i'm going to increase them by a third So instead of doing four miles, now you're doing six miles worth of interval work. Instead of doing a four-mile tempo, you're now like, I'm going to do eight. Is that crazy? Is that crazy to try to go do a threshold run for eight miles? And then maybe I've been running two hours. Well, maybe I increased my long run to two and a half, and I put it on more race-specific terrain. I think when you're ready to cross that bridge, your highlight points of each week, those go up first. They go up. They can go up across the board, but over 
volume stimulus on quality and long run days is the first place I would start getting out of your own little box. I hit my three miles of quality for today. Wipe your hands clean of it. I checked that box. Not anymore. So that's the first place I would start if I feel stuck. And you could argue to me as much as you want on that, but that's where I would direct somebody pretty quickly. I don't feel a need to argue that you on that. So I'll just present the other side. Yeah. Keep your quality the same and raise every single day other than that and see how your body responds to a higher overall volume and what happens to your quality days on that. Do you arrive a little bit more fatigued so you have to work more purposefully to still hit your paces? Or after like two or three, maybe four weeks, does it start to get easier on those days because you just bring bigger capacity to those days? But I don't care personally. One of the two you have to start on. This juncture very much seems like when we talk to the pro athletes or the ones who are, have really, really been accomplished, like oh, I train nine to 11 hours a week or I do this. And most common people are mm-hmm. novice people which would be the common person, really. Most of the athletes are going to stay in the novice category the majority of their career, in quotes. Like, I'm at four. I'm at five, maybe six on a good week, right? Which is great training. And I'm mm-hmm. at six right now, maybe seven. I'm not over overly – maybe I'm a novice right now. I don't know. But um, the volume typically is, like, going to be one of those things where you got to get comfortable committing a little bit more, whether it's more to your recovery or your – physio or whatever, but it seems to be the point where you just have to accept, okay, what I used to think is big and scary is now just another Monday. And so finding a way, whether it's on the quality days, like I said, or on the recovery, the in-betweens, it seems like that, that one is going to work for most people. You agree with that? I do. I do. The, the second place I would go to that is kind of what we talked about. Do the other type of workout is whatever your big main mover workout right now, If for me, let's say back in the day, one day I was doing 400s and 600s, another day I was doing 1200s or miles, whichever one is my big mover now becomes my secondary workout. And I replace it with a, the type of workout I used to avoid. So I was doing a a long run or a threshold run every other week on the Saturdays back then from like 2011 to 2013. I was doing two sets of quality interval sessions per week. In 15, 16, 17, 18, those kind, I started doing one interval session per week and two runs per week that were longer. The workout took me 90 minutes plus to do, and it was based around more threshold work and long run work. And I poured my cup into that and really focused on getting better at that. And my other one was saved to stay okay at what I'm good at and balance all the training out. And what happened then was immediately my longer distances improved. So if you look at my chart of my mile, my 5K, all of that. So let's let's put my actual times in. Post-collegiately, every single summer that year, I broke 430 in a mile. Anywhere from, I mean, my spread was 420 to 426, I believe, were my four or five years there. I ran somewhere in between 420 and 426 every year. So let's just call it right in the middle. Let's just call it 424 for a mile. Okay. That equivalent 5K pace is 453, which is 1510. I've never run that in my life. This is VDOT again, right? VDOT, according to the VDOT calculator. And the 10K is 3130, which is 504 pace. I've never run that in my life. But when I first started... 
my first year out of college, I had just graduated and I was actually faster at the time. I'd run the equivalent of a 414 mile. Three weeks later, I ran the Susan G. Komen Madison 5K race and I ran 1629 and it almost killed me. And let me just remind the listeners, his VDOT predictor would put him at 1510. So according to his mile, he should run a 424. Okay, well, right. But let's just use that. So he should be running 1510, and he ran a minute and a half slower than where he should be. Yeah, and and that's that's not good. Four years later, I put in that big block of training to try to get to Killington and run really well there. I ran 420 on the dot at the the, uh, Capitol Mile in Madison, Wisconsin. And that year I ran 1542 in a 5K. Close that gap, baby. So I closed the gap significantly. That would have been 45, 46 seconds faster in a 5K. And your mile was slower that year. I was six seconds per mile slower in the mile and 15 seconds faster per mile faster in the 5K. But... If you look at it another way, that year I ran my first mile at UW-Whitewater and I opened in 422 my senior year, running kind of solo. One guy hung on for half a mile. My opener was 422. This summer, that was my first mile of the year. It was technically an opener. It was 420. So in theory, I was right around the same exact fitness, but I was 15 seconds per mile faster in the 5K simply by adding in longer hill work and threshold work every single week and lengthening my long run. It's powerful. Less speed work overall. My times don't matter, but my relationship between the times are what matter. So removing the thing you like doing the most, but keeping it in a skill capacity. Keep it there. Still use it. Still sharpen that skill. But replace that chunk of time and that energy that requires recovery on the thing that you know is the piece you've been slacking on. That's the next stage of being an intermediate athlete. And again, my this is full of, I would call for me, personal bias or what I've learned through myself or my athletes. So I'm just going to take my experience. That's what I'm uh, projecting out to you guys. Not, again, none of this is mm-hmm. fact. You're not going to find this in the dictionary uh, or wherever you would find factual running resources. Um, is, it wouldn't be the dictionary, but you get my point. And now I lost my point, Bracken. I talked myself right back to where I started. And now I, I can't. Oh, oh, I know what I was going to say. Whew. Maybe I need some caffeine. It is, for most people, as a general rule of thumb, I think 90, 85% of people are going to fall into that category naturally. Most of us aren't. Like the, the fast twitch athletes that we see in professional sports and ball sports, they're like the, they're really the anomalies. Most of us, most of us normal humans are in the camp in which Bracken just described. We're going to trail off as, as the distance gets longer based on sort of relative metrics. And so that's a safe bet for most people if they don't know themselves very well. Would you not agree mm-hmm. with that? Like it seems to be uh, through time that seems to be more productive as a generality when people feel stuck. Yeah. And those that aren't know it. There was a guy I worked with who was, I want to say, 17, 20 and a 5K and never broke something. His PR was still 512 in the mile. Oh. And it had come down to that. So he was progressing in the five. He was one of those rare examples of people that are just naturally better at distance. 
and he could hold near his 5k pace for his 10k. He's clearly a slow twitch, staying power monster. It's clear. He didn't have to get to expert level to find that out or intermediate. That's just what he was. You generally know I am just better the race, the longer the race goes on. I can hold close to my mile pace for my two mile pace. I can hold close to my 5k for my 10. No one's saying that accidentally. It's not like, I, th- I think, did that happen or not? No, you know, mm-hmm. you absolutely know. If your mile is not much faster than your 5k pace, you know, you're that outlier. If that's not True. clearly you, then it's not you. You don't have to worry about that. Um, a point I want to play cleanup on where um, I said the first bullet point of, of that juncture between novice and intermediate is let's increase our our highlights of each week, which would be our quality days, increasing the volume at which we spend mm-hmm. intensity. Um, a person might hear that and say, okay, I do four by a mile right now and I average six minute pace for those miles. Now I'm going to try to do seven by a mile, six by a mile, let's say which is daunting. That doesn't mean that you need to go out and be able to still run six minute pace now for six intervals. It doesn't mean that needs to be, and that doesn't mean that you're not going to get better because now you ran six by a mile at six ten instead of four by a mile at six flat adjusting expectations. There doesn't mean you're going to go out and run the same metrics for more intervals. You probably will be slower when you add volume and wonder how is this benefiting me? You may ask yourself that like, well, well, I can't even hit my six-minute miles that I used to because I'm doing seven reps. Like, that's ridiculous. Like, how is this helping me? That's where you just got to trust what we're saying. But you have to readjust your expectations with the more volume. It's not like we just extend the pacing we're used to out for another third or half of what we've been doing. Um, no, the pacing goes with that at first, and that's okay. But we're expecting the volume yeah. to help um, propel you forward versus, like, the overspeed training, just more of it. And so I wanted to get that point out there because people I could see most of them thinking like feeling the need to keep their old pacing now that we reintegrate more volume. And that actually isn't true. Eventually, yes, maybe a year, six months down the road, you can do your six by a mile now at the same pace you used to do your four by a mile. That's the hope, actually. But in the beginning, you just have to sort of readjust how you're approaching it from an intensity standpoint. And I didn't make that point. I didn't get to it. And I, I wanted to make that point. I agree with you. From that from that one bullet point, we kind of made two points. We said either increase the duration mm-hmm. and quality or increase your time on feed on sort of recovery or what we call easy runs, right? Do you have another bullet point that you would go mm-hmm. to next? Yeah. Well, it's kind of like a – not a caveat, but a, a disclaimer for doing this. If you're a very slow twitch type athlete and you're very good at running long and running slow, you are more susceptible to injury when you do fast-paced running. And when you're a fast-paced runner, you're more susceptible to injury when you add in long, slow stuff or grindy stuff. Your body does handle the work you're made to handle better. So when you switch into something else, you do have to do kind of the minimum effective dose of whatever that next thing is. So Kirk and I ran the 1,500 meters in college, and I am the 800 meter. I ran a lot of mm-hmm. that. It wasn't uncommon to do 20 by 200 or something like that is a workout hard running every single one of them right around 800 meter pace. That was not a crazy workout. And we would wear spikes for that. Oftentimes that was the type of workout we were suited to and prepared for a 10 K athlete coming down to do speed work does not belong doing 20 by 200 at 800 meter pace or at mile pace. That's inappropriate. And you're probably going to get hurt. 
but coming down and doing some amount of speed at maybe it could be closer to mile pace or 3k or even 5k and doing the less amount of volume, the least amount possible to still incite some change. That is very appropriate. And then you can build up to that over time. So when you do switch to the other style of workout, the piece you've been avoiding, keep in mind, it's the it's the piece you're also not as good at and thus you're not as prepared for, and it can be very damaging to you. And so that's kind of the caveat to the make the workout longer. Yeah, progress the workout, but do not jump from I've built my quality work up to six miles of threshold. I've been avoiding faster than VO2 max pace. I'm going to jump into six miles of that style of work. That is a recipe for disaster. So when you switch to the other one, you have to baby it. So for someone like myself, when I wanted to do longer threshold work, that had to look like quality long runs get a 90 minute run with maybe five by three minutes at threshold in there. I couldn't just go right into a big long tempo or do a eight mile cut down where I eased into running harder. I didn't just go out and do two by 30 minutes hard on the road. That's not the way this works. You have to choose the form of that that best suits your current skills in order to make that your new version. Does that all come through clear? Oh, yeah. Definitely. Basically telling you to temper your enthusiasm a little bit and make sure you do it. Yeah. You do it in a smart, progressive manner instead of going all in on the opposite end of the the stick, the coin. Yeah. There's long and short versions of everything. Mm -hmm. If you're training for a mile, you can train off of 200s or train off thousands. The distance runner should train off thousands. (laughs) The speed guy should probably train off 200s for a while. And then when they switch over, they should do less of it. You can do a, a 10 mile tempo run. Or you can do a 20-minute tempo and get similar benefit cardiovascularly, but they're done at significantly different paces. So choosing the one that meets you in the moment is the best way to go, and you progress towards that other one. Yep. I'm not doing a 10-mile tempo when I'm early in training, but I'll go crack off a 20-minute. Mm-hmm. But hopefully six months later, I'm healthy and comfortable enough to I can go run 10 miles on the roads hard. But it wouldn't be appropriate for me early. Yep. You imagine what your uh, calves would feel like if you went out and did twenty by two hundred and spikes right now. <laughs> you imagine where they'd be for the oh next couple of weeks. I told you the last time I wore spikes, right? Mm, probably, but I forget. When Ryan Kent came down for OCR mm. Stars to run this mile at sea level, and he came and stayed at my house two days prior, I spiked up to go run some twos and fours at mile pace to see what it would be mm-hmm. like. And my calves started getting sore. So I walked over to the bench, sat down, took my spikes off, put my flats on to go continue the workout, stood up, and both calves started to seize. (laughs) Doesn't surprise me. I had done like 400, 200, 400, and started to cramp. Hmm. Doesn't surprise me at all. I don't own a pair of spikes anymore. Um, Other than your shoe Uh, wall, you don't either. I don't have a purpose for them. Um, Okay. I'm trying to get, we're trying to give you as many tangibles as possible at this juncture. So far, basically, we told you to maybe work the other side of the coin, right? The one that you know, like mm-hmm. intuitively now at this point, we, you've done your run metrics, you have an idea. So do more of what, where you're lacking based on metrics. So that also emphasizes yeah. like you need to be time trialing, which everybody dreads. Don't lie to me. Tell me you look forward to them. Maybe there's a part of you, but we know they suck. you got to do them. And that's going to help you at this juncture, knowing your metrics and then gauging if things are improving in the future objectively. The other thing, so again, we basically told you to increase volume, either quality days or your recovery or easy runs. And you may respond to that great. You can do more than one thing at a time, though. And the other thing for me that 
I think the most profound thing I have done with my fitness that was I put in no more time, I put in no more effort, but I just turned the dial on was running uphill. Or if you're a mountain goat and all you want to do is run uphill, maybe just shift a little bit to that to the flat roads each week. The amount mm-hmm. that I improved from simply doing yes. okay, mile repeats take me five minutes apiece. Well now I'm doing five minute intervals at fifteen percent, for example. That took 30, over 30 seconds off my 5K was spending no more time doing interval work, no more time doing threshold work, no more time on feet at all. I just shifted to something I wasn't putting much of a focus on, and it was enough shake to my system that it propelled me forward. New stimulus? Well, I like that. It soaks it up, right, until that sponge is saturated, and then you have to work harder to Mm -hmm. continue that saturation. And so picking one of those two, like picking a path and most are going to be in the path. Like you can never do enough vert, but then do purposeful vert. Um, you're going to hit a juncture. Mm-hmm. And I know some of you live out in the mountains and all you do is run in snow right now and trails and you run 10 minute miles. Cause that's all you can right now. I just had a consult call with a woman who's in that boat and I respect that grind at the same time. It's like, all right, let's, let's look at that next. Now, how much am I going up and down and how much am I going flat? I think every single person who doesn't live somewhere in the mountains and take it takes advantage of them regularly is leaving speed and speed extension, AKA threshold work on the table by not chasing vert with purpose regularly. And so, and again, there'll be a few handful of people who need to do the opposite stimulus, which means run flat and fast. So I think that's the next juncture point for me from this novice to intermediate is, okay, let's add in a big dose of stimulus type of stimulus. I have not been getting. And for me, those are the two examples. I'm sure there's plenty others, but that'd be the simplest one right there. A focus block on something like that. I almost I almost want to do our next training Tuesday on why uphill running matters for everyone. Because I think it's the idea of it is accepted, but it kind of doubted underneath, like, will this really? There are some physiological reasons uphill running matters. And I think I want to do a training Tuesday on sure. it sooner than later. Can we, can we do that sometime in the next month? I would love it. And if people want to hear it, message us and tell us. But it's like simple things like, okay, running uphill, for example, forces you to earn every stride, generate more power with each step. Each step is strength work in disguise while working you aerobically. At the same time, if you're running on real terrain uphill, guess what? You have to run back downhill. And what does that do? That increases your resistance to impact so that when you go run hard on flat terrain, your legs structurally don't break down as quick. So you're able to sustain your pacing faster because structurally your body's been hammered by the downhills now because you've been running up them too. And suddenly it's like, my legs aren't fatiguing at mile six. Like they always do. How come I'm getting to mile 10 before that sets in? Well, you just bulletproofed your resistance to impact. Mm-hmm. And so it can even work both ways that way. Well, if you're running up, you got to come down. If you come down, you improve your resistance to impact. So I could talk myself in circles there, but there's a lot of justifications that we should dive into with like a training too. Yeah. Yeah. Let's do that. And I, we've talked about the importance of it, but I don't know if we've ever broken down structurally and physiologically, what does it do for you that flat ground running doesn't. I agree. And I credit that to you. You prescribed uphill work for me initially, and it was like, we got to get on this, and, and it opened my eyes. I, I met it halfway, bought an incline trainer, and started committing twice a week on that thing no matter what, and suddenly I'm running faster than I ever had, and I couldn't make sense of it. I can now, but um, it's interesting. Yeah. So what, 
So, okay, so I made that. Do you have anything else that jumps out at this juncture? You could list a thing. Boy, have you not been strength training? Go strength train. Duh. Like things like that. But is there anything else that really jumps out at you? No, maybe there should be, but there's not. It's just the concept of now you have to round out your equation. You have to balance your equation. The things that you've been doing too much of and the things you've been avoiding have to be put either into the inverse relationship or just more into balance. And then after you've, you you ride that out for uh, several months, you're retesting along the way. And like you said, you have to be time trialing or racing throughout this. It's the only way to really know. But then after that, at some point, you're going to get to one of two places. And those places are either, when do I need to repeat what I've done versus mm -hmm. when should I go in a new direction? And then the final is, what do I do now when I stagnate? So I've tried these new things. I've switched up the equation. I've added in the others. I saw it through. Do I repeat it all over again and see where I get to? Or it worked great. Should I do it again and expect it to work again? Or is it time to to move on to whatever this next theoretical stage is? That's another point where... Getting ahead of it almost, right? Preventing stagnation from happening at all. Yeah. I, I had a call with Rob Pettyjohn yesterday. Rob's a monster. We've talked about him before on here, and he's getting ready to build up towards High Rocks World Championships again. And he had a really good year last year. He set his record for his for the age group in High Rocks. He won every race he wanted to win. He showed up big time at World Championship. He had a great block of training. So we faced that age-old dilemma. Should we repeat what we did and try to pull it off again? Because it was aggressive. It was an aggressive build. There's big volume, a lot of new style of workout. Should we hit it again or should we tweak it? Is it, if it's not broke, don't fix it. Or is it, we need to get ahead of the curve. Which one is it? What do we do? And that is a dilemma that everyone faces after they stagnate the first time. It's, will I stagnate now? If I repeat what got me here, do I get ahead of it? Or do I trust the process and do it again until it confirms to me that I have stagnated? Uh-huh. Is there a right answer to that? This is where it gets even murkier because the farther you go down the line, the tougher everything is to analyze how it's effectively improving you unless you are living a very lab-based life. If you're not taking blood draws, if you're not getting cardiovascular testing done consistently, then there's only three ways to tell if a workout's getting better. It either gets faster, you do more reps, or the work is just better. You're doing it with better form. It's taking less out of you. And all three of those are subjective enough that they don't all, if you're hitting only one of them, it doesn't guarantee you'll be a better racer. You should be, but it doesn't guarantee it because maybe you're getting better at the workout. My intuition tells me to repeat and find out. Meaning, let's repeat. It was effective once. Is a once a run through enough to know that I can't now do that, but maybe one or 2% better the second time through, which will yield an improvement. My, my intuition says mm -hmm. repeat what's worked to an extent, but obviously there's a walking into the wall or banging your head into the wall effect eventually when you continue for cycles and years. That That's what gets you from novice to intermediate. Yes. It gets a little more cloudy now, but repetition is important. Now, what I think about with this is at this juncture, it's like the fresh eyes approach and not to plug coaching, but we get so stuck in our own ways yes. and our own routines and our thought processes and our decisions. 
that sometimes the the cage rattle you need is actually hiring a coach or following a plan that somebody else makes all the decisions that you don't have to think. And it's so vastly different, even if it's just to the setup of your week, the structure of your week, the way things work. Like the time then is to like hire a coach and let them let them handle that and see if the whatever their philosophy is changes up your fitness. And I think of that with Woody Kincaid, who just broke the American record in the 5K indoors. He ran 13.51. He wasn't even expected to, or 50, yeah, 51. Out kicking Joe Klecker, who ran, what, uh, 13.54. And Woody Kincaid ran with the Bowerman Track Club with uh, Grant Fisher, kind of in Grant Fisher's shadows. And something was, and I don't know the nuances there, but Woody Kincaid went from Bowerman Track Club to, who is he with now? I don't even know. New coaching. I think Mike Smith Mike, at NAU. Mike, Mike Smith at NAU. Went to a whole new deal. And what, a year later, six months to a year later, living in the shadow, Less. living in the yeah. shadows of other runners. A great runner. Don't get me wrong. He made the Olympics in the 10K. He had a great year. He didn't have an American record-breaking 5K type year. And he goes and switches stimulus, switches coaches. Just a new, new eyes, fresh eyes approach. Obviously, they're doing something a little different there. And he breaks through astronomically six months mm-hmm. different. And he's a professional. He lives and breathes this. All he did was go to, like put it in somebody else's hands and let it just be whatever it is. It's different than what I've been doing, and my body's probably going to respond to that. And for none of you who've watched it, he went out and set the American record yeah. a week ago, less than a week ago in the in the five k. That'd be an example of that, though, right? Just first race of the first year. race of the year. So it's a roundabout way of saying like that fresh eyes approach is real also as well. Like change stimulus. That's what Woody Kincaid did. And he just took, I mean, the whole world by storm. I mean, his time. He's an expert. Woody Kincaid is like two seconds off of like highly Gaber Selassie's indoor 5k and like just insane people. He's all of a sudden with that. He would never have been mentioned in the same conversation. Suddenly he is. Anyways, you get my point. Now, I, I kind of want to expand on that. I didn't see you going there, but we don't know the exact situation. There are a lot of moving pieces there. However, if you just backed off to the 20,000-foot view, the Bowerman Track Club does a lot of interval-based workouts. They do a lot of track work. Mike Smith is at NAU, which is an altitude-based college, and they are known for their threshold work. So simply just looking at the, we do not know for sure, but moving from a camp that is speed-based to a camp which is strength-based in their approach, and you take Woody Kincaid, who is known for his crazy closing, which means he has enough fast twitch to be able to get up and go 25 seconds in his final 200 in the middle of a 10K, maybe that slight little increase in his staying power was all the difference in the world. Now, maybe it's all the work he put in throughout those years, and now he got fresh eyes and he got excited about the sport and just had a good off-season and nailed a race. But regardless of what it is, something different happened and something different happened on race day. Can't deny the facts. He switched coaches. He switched locations. He broke through. That could be as simple as you making one of the choices we've outlined and doing that. It could be as simple. More volume, more pills, more whatever. Yeah. So I, I'm exactly like you until I can see the writing on the wall. I'm, I'm going to back up one, one, one step here and say, assuming you are training for the same test that the test hasn't changed and the athletes showing up for the test are not drastically different. 
then I am in favor of mostly, if not all the way, repeating the work that got you there. Mm -hmm. Because it's proven to have worked and most likely... You already know if you were stagnating towards the end of that and got lucky versus this just worked and I arrived feeling good and I know I can go back and do better now. Now, it doesn't mean you copy paste the schedule and follow it exactly. You copy paste the schedule and then you start saying, but I can work at a 10% higher volume rate this year. And this workout really didn't feel the way it should have. So we're going to adjust that. And here we were doing six to eight reps. I'd like to have eight as my baseline now with an upper of 10, maybe by the end of this block. So you're still progressing things, but repeating that block, I think is the best way to confirm or deny exactly what it does for you. I just think it's hard to make a decision to change. Yeah. You don't improve. And then you're like, dang it. Yeah, but the caveats are that nothing big changed. The race distance, location, or type didn't change. You weren't racing cupcakes year one, and now this year world beaters are coming out. And you didn't progress to a significantly different place athletically. Like, you didn't go from, let's say, the last time you repeated this block, you were 38, and now you're 40. And it was a speed block that was like using the last of your fast twitch. Mm -hmm. And now you have noticed you have significantly slowed at 40. Then you can't do it. So as long as your personal situation and the race situation haven't changed noticeably, I think you have to repeat the block. Now with Rob, we're going to repeat it. But we've done some things in the six months since Vegas that I think are important to add into this. And so we're going to do that. But the point is, when in doubt, prove it rather than totally change lay down some objective data yeah i agree with that and it's funny to have the conversation about changing stimulus but then also repeating your stimulus in the same breath but that's exactly what we're saying and for perspective let's say you're in the novice and you're responding to all this it could be four years of novice running so to speak where you have you're not really splitting hairs yet maybe now the cycle bracket and i are talking about are two 12-week training blocks or two six-week training blocks, depending on how pointy the end of your spear is. We're not talking in years now. We're talking in months. So this is a a quicker Mm -hmm. flash-in-the-pan subject study. It it could be maybe one year to one year, but it's not four. And so there's quicker turnaround on this stuff, which eventually you do these turnarounds like we're talking. You play, you tinker, you add, you subtract, you get a new coach, you run under a new philosophy, you try 80-20 running for the first time in your life. Something as silly as that. You decide I'm going to do a three, two, one approach. I'm going to do three quality workouts week one, two week two, and one week three, and then start it all over. Like weird approaches like that that are outside the box that work for a lot of people. There's a million things you could do that we're not going to outline. But you start doing all the tinkering and the tinkering, and now you're like, every way I look at this, I'm kind of ending up in the same place where it becomes like this advanced stage. Now you're like, okay. Like I have exhausted through six years of tinkering and I've gotten better, but like I'm at that point where I don't even know which direction to look like. Where can I squeeze the last bit of juice out of this? Um, I've referred to this post by Tyler Germain not too long ago, maybe a month or two ago in an episode. And Tyler outlined since 2016 his marathon performances. And it was 216, 2 hours, 16 minutes, 215, 213, 214, 216, 213, 214, 213. And he listed it. He goes, and he ran 216 at CIM, which he was disappointed with, or 2.15. And he listed out like eight to 10 marathons in the year. And he goes, well, at this point, something needs to change. 
My results tell me that whatever I've been doing is getting me all the changes I made have ended up in the exact same place. He's like, I don't know if I need to go longer, if I need to go shorter and faster, or I need to do something I'm not even thinking of, but something Mm -hmm. needs to change. And that's the point Tyler German is at. He's at the, okay, I'm, I'm at this intermediate and now I, I need to get advanced to understand how to make this final breakthrough. Cause he's run within three minutes of his same marathon time for five, six years in a row. That's, yeah, that's the next stage. And that's the toughest, I think. Yeah. And I would argue he's probably advanced, not probably he is. Yeah. When you're talking five years in a row of national caliber competition on top of running in college and high school, he's at the point we aspire to get to, which is, have we hit our ceiling or is there one more notch in there Mm -hmm. that I think I can find? I mean, really, that's the dream as an athlete. You don't dream of hitting your ceiling, but you want to be able to see it and then shoot for it again. His question is, is my head touching my ceiling or is there a false ceiling that I need to find a way to break through? Yep. And that's the final, man, that's not the final. That's the penultimate stage as an athlete. The final stage is, all right, now what am I willing to accept? And where do I have to back off and pour different efforts into it in order to slow the decline? But he's at the penultimate, which is, have I reached my ceiling or is there a little more? And I would guess that there is nobody listening to this podcast who is closer to their ceiling than he is. I agree. I would guess there's no one here who has sat for six years within a few seconds of their best performance without significant growth or significant retraction. Six years, 100 mile weeks, six years of training under coaching. Yeah, exactly. It's because they've sat at mediocrity for a long time and just not cared to ever progress. He's done the work. You can't run over 100 miles a week for six years and say, you know, I think there's more on the table. I'm sure he could say that, but we look at it and say, it's either stimulus needs to change or you're there. Like you found what you're capable. Right. He was actually like, I was like, yeah, you're running hundred mile weeks. He's like 110, 120. Don't you pay attention to my Strava? <laughs> like, okay, 110 or 120. Yeah. Like that's where he's at. And he's been doing it for years. So, and this is the part of the conversation mm-hmm. where it's like imposter syndrome, sort of like, I've never been there. I will never be there. Most likely. You could argue, compare. I don't even need to get into that debate, but I doubt it. My life is not consumed enough with yeah. with this that I would probably ever reach that stage. I don't know about you, and and I don't even know if I can give. I can give you what I think would be good advice in this stage, um, which of course would be all the advice we've given up to this point, and then even more micro analyzed. But um, do you want to try, or are we going to do it a disservice? No, I, I think I'll just do broad strokes here. Okay. And you've already touched upon this with the switching coaches thing. This is where it gets very difficult on coaches. I've had a few athletes to the point where we just had to part ways because we'd done it for years together. Yep. We'd gone through the magic stage. We'd gone through the post-honeymoon lull. We'd gone mm-hmm. through the resurgence of finding something new to try. And eventually it's like you just need someone else to tell you to do, even if it's the same work. You just need a different backdrop. You need a different presenter at this point. If you cook the same meal over and over and then you go and you eat it at someone else's house, it just tastes different, even if it's no different at all. And so sometimes really good coaches, and this isn't what I'm saying about myself with these people, but you see like 
with with a high level like Woody. Really good coaches over mm-hmm. at the Oregon Track Club will have someone leave and do better without them. And it's not even necessarily their fault. Yep. And on the other side, some really good or really bad coaches will reap the benefits of being the fresh face in the room, mm-hmm. whether they deserve it or not. 100%. Sometimes when you're at the highest level and you've done it long enough, sometimes you just need a fresh chapter, a clean slate. And whoever's there to be that person might just be the beneficiary of that. Or sometimes it's only because of that person that they draw something new out of you. And oftentimes it's mental. It's a new perspective on training. It's a new joy. It's a removal of stress or an adding of perspective or something. Oftentimes these improvements happen outside of your shoes. It's not the work that happens in the shoes. An emotional reinvigoration. Yes. They might not even be physiological, and it's true. No. I I think that was a good stab at that, or at least the the starting of that conversation, because I agree with you, which is where Woody would have been at, or is at, I would say, very much. He'd be the prime example, probably. Yeah. Knowing from the surface what he he just went through. Um, Go ahead. I can see you want to say something. Well, I think that this whole episode is a reminder to coaches. We've seen a lot of new coaches popping up in our personal area. People that we know were not coaches and now are coaches or dabbled for a while and now they're doing it. And we've talked about this on our bad coaching episode and we've talked about our mistakes as coaches. But the one thing you can't learn as a coach is experience. You can learn everything else. You can read every book. You can watch everybody's uh what's it called? Their, uh, their presentations at conferences. You can read and, and just eat everything, gobble it all up, get every degree you want, but you can't fabricate experience. Now that's not coming from someone with the most experience in the world, but every one of these stages that we've talked about, you can't fully understand it until you've gone through it both yourself or with someone else and in the wrong way and the correct way. You have to be able to understand those. And so if you're new to coaching and you've not yet got someone from intermediate to advanced or novice to intermediate, you don't yet know the correct way for them. You might know the correct way for you. You might know the correct way for the one person you worked with, but it will change. Invariably, it will change and it's going to knock you right down. And you're going to feel really confident right up into the point where you realize you don't know a thing. And then you build right back up and you add that to your learning file and you move forward. And Kirk and I have gone through this and will continue to go through this. But every time you go through it with someone, it encourages and kind of grows the the chances that you will do it better with the next one. So we talk often about pumping your brakes before you charge people for your services. And this episode right here is one of those big reasons why. Because you don't know what you don't know. And we did not know this. And some people might listen to this and say, you guys don't know it yet. And they're probably right. But there's a difference between going through it once and knowing how it will affect every athlete. So this is a a little PSA here by me at the end of the episode, which is if you're rushing into coaching and you've gone through a stage and you know how it affected you, you may not be able to blanket apply that to everyone. And there are some nuanced approaches that you must experience. So seek those. Do not shy away from them and be honest with your athletes that, hey, we're going to reach a few points that I haven't gone through with you or with anyone. 
and we'll grow from it. It doesn't mean you can't do it, but it means you need to be careful about rushing into coaching situations. Mm, I'm glad you said that. Also kind of glad you hinted at the fact like uh, if you're listening to this, stagnation is normal and it happens to literally everybody in their career. Mm-hmm. Eliud Kipchoge, he's pretty much there, guys. Think about it. The best marathoner of all time is circling the same waters and training 120-mile weeks to do it or more. I don't even know. Maybe he's a little lower, isn't he? But point I'm getting at is stagnation is normal. You don't suck. You're not a failure. Backtracking at times is normal and scratching your head as to what is going on and why. And breaking through is probably a little happening a little less often than you may be thinking because you see that in people's highlights reels or the improvement phase is glorified, whereas they didn't talk about the fact that they couldn't figure it out for years until they did. And so there's roadblocks, there's trial and error, and part of that trial is error. And some of the suggestions we made today might not work for you, or it might literally make you a minute faster in your 5K. I don't know. Um, But point being is like the reason you have to listen to this or like self-reflect over some of the things we are saying It's because we've done it a hundred times. Our athletes, we've done it with thousands of times now over the years. And like you sitting at home wondering if you're getting any better or not, you want to have options. And that's what we're trying to give you. But the fact that you're sitting there scratching your head or not satisfied, we're all not satisfied at many points in our running careers. And that's when you have to start looking under the microscope. And that's what we're just trying to help you do today. Um, But even the pointiest end of the spear, the world champions, the world record holders, they hit this too. They all do. Eventually, you will run your best time and you will never run it faster again. And that's the hard truth. So we'll eventually hit the point where all of this is just about stopping the bleeding, but um, you're not alone. And I'm saying like everybody's going through this, no matter how fast or slow you are. And so this should speak to hopefully speak to most yes. of you in some capacity. You're exactly right. And all we want to do is to be able to plan and count on things. And the human body will just continually disappoint us. (laughs) Running is a cruel mistress. There are no guarantees. Every time you PR, there's a real chance that is the last time you will ever PR in your life. Mm -hmm. There's also a real chance that that's the beginning. But there are no guarantees and nothing is linear. And if it's being linear for you currently, congratulations. It's probably novice and it's going to stop. It will let you down. So it's, uh, yeah, it's not a personal failing when it doesn't go well because it can't always go well. It can't. Yeah. The sign of progressing as an athlete are that things stop being linear. It's a badge of honor. Congratulations. Now you adjust with it. Yep. Exactly. And complacency with your training style or what's already worked um, has to be tossed out the window in a case in which progression is stopped. And that's if you get anything out of today. <laughs> I mean, you know, you, what, what is it? You, you keep doing the same thing over and get the same results. Well, then obviously you need to you change that. Walk into the wall three times, take the door. How about that? Which means do something different. Um, yep. uh, I have a question for you, Bracken, as we're about to close this thing up. Bracken and I spent some time putting together yes. a sweet, sweet run-focused, mm-hmm. the running public training plan. This is not an OCR plan. This is a 5K to half marathon very purposeful. I'm pumped about the training we put together. I love the progression we put together. I'm my stoke birds are chirping over this. I feel this is training I would pay for and get. I'd pay myself to take to have this yes. training plan. When is it coming out, Bracken? When are we releasing this thing? 
Oh, I'm so nervous to say a day, but I can say this. The workouts are all being built in Training Peaks. One of, one of the things with our last one is that not every workout populates the way it's supposed to in Training Peaks. Some can, can load right into your watch and follow the whole workout, and some you have to read the description to follow the workout. Mm-hmm. And so I am working my best to ensure that every single one of these populates correctly in your watch if that's your way of getting the workout. It's tricky. So it's taken me an entire week longer than I hoped. My hope is still that it's ready to rock by the weekend or by this Monday. That is what I'm shooting for. But the plan is complete. The workouts are built, but the workouts have to be modified to make sure that they abide by the Training Peaks watch sync protocol. Mm. Would you pay for this training plan? Does the work we put down excite you? Absolutely. You and I both said this to each other at the end of this. We looked at it several times and said, ooh, I like this. And at the end, we both said, if we followed nothing but this this year, we would be very, very ready. Yep. Yeah, I'm excited about that one. So I just wanted to ask, get that plug out there. Sometime soon. Yeah, let's just say Monday, and we I have to have it ready. Oh. And likewise, the OCR version... Go ahead. No, I just said I didn't know you were going to commit to something that early. How about this? By Monday, February 13th? Is that that Monday? 16th? 13th. Monday, February 13th. How about by then? It gives you just over a week. For sure. And if it's earlier, then we beat that time. So we have the running only, and we are also adding in the OCR version. We currently have one on there, but it will uh, be replaced by our new and improved version. So both plans will be ready concurrently. Heck yeah. That plan's dope too. But yeah, it's going to be some changes from, for those of you who've been on it regularly, you're going to see some new stuff on there, mm-hmm. which is sweet. So, And we got freaking OCR races coming up. February, Jacksonville. I mean, that is six weeks away. It's here. It's already here somehow. Six weeks away in February? Or, I mean, not six weeks, three weeks away. I was going to say, I'm, I'm living in February. <laughs> I'm lost. Um, three weeks away. It's here. Purposeful work needs to be being done if you're planning on showing up in Jacksonville. I can tell you that from my SoCal experience, not doing purposeful OCR work heading into Jackson, <laughs> heading into that race. So. Well, Kirk, I am one week out from race day. For those that don't know, Bracken announced on Bracken announced on the Race Brain podcast earlier. We have not announced this to our listeners, Bracken. That Bracken is going to be doing the High Rocks North oh, yeah. American Champs doubles with Rich Ryan, and Bracken has run outside on real terrain like three times in the last four months. Two, two times. My bad. So this is going to be a fun experiment to watch. Oh no, that's true. Three. Okay, yeah, three yes, times. You're correct. May not know what date it is, but I know how many times you've run outside. So one week. I'd also pay to watch that race. I'd pay for a training plan. I'd pay to watch that race. And I sure hope we can somehow. Well, Venmo me. I'll I'll have Lisa record it and send okay. it to you. How much does she charge? For about 52 minutes to 55 minutes uh, of work? I'll charge it like a consult. Call it 80 bucks. All right. I'll send it over. Call it 90. Money's no concern. <laughs> All right. 90 it is. For the good of the people. If she goes Instagram live on your account, 90 bucks, pretty reasonable. That's what you should do is hand her your phone yeah. and go Instagram live. All right. Uh-huh. We'll see if she can do that. Okay. I'll send the money. Money's on its way. All right. All right. This is turned into nonsense. Uh, we'll be, we'll have another episode before you race so we can pump you up then. That's right. We'll see you on Tuesday, Tuesday, Tuesday. Tuesday.